We are now six months into our investigation of the notorious West Memphis 3 case. Throughout the course of these months, I've made it abundantly clear that I have formulated the opinion that Jesse Miss Kelly, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin are innocent of the murders of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. This case has had worldwide notoriety since 1996 when HBO's first documentary, Paradise Lost, went live. Since then, for the last 22 years, people from around the world have been developing their own opinions on the case. And now, in 2018, there are thousands of people firmly rooted in either the innocent camp, known by most as, quote, supporters, and the guilty camp, affectionately known as, quote, nons. Since my interpretation of the evidence over these months has led me to the conclusion that the West Memphis Three are in fact innocent, we're going to take the next two weeks in an effort to be fair and balanced to let you hear from the other side. In today's episode, you're going to hear the first half of an interview with a woman named Lisa O'Brien. Lisa is a longtime paralegal who also hosts her own podcast. On Memorial Day, Lisa and I both took time away from our barbecues and ended up spending over two hours discussing what many would call the non-perspective. Given the length of the episode, we've decided to break it up over two weeks. So without further ado, here is part one of the non-perspective. I'm joined today on the phone by Ms. Lisa O'Brien, who has graciously agreed to come on the show this week and give the in the air quote non perspective, meaning that uh, Lisa is is very well read in the case. She's very well researched, and she is of the opinion that the conviction of the so-called West Memphis Three is a good conviction, and they they were guilty of the crime. Of course, I've I've come to the con- opposite conclusion. So Lisa has agreed to come on the show and kind of present her case, so to speak, and explain why she has come to the conclusion she's come into. So uh, Lisa, I'll go ahead and let you explain to the audience who you are, what you do. I know you have your own podcast. Um, so you, so if you want to go ahead and explain your background, and then we'll get started. All right. Uh, I am from originally from New Orleans. I am a paralegal at a plaintiff's personal injury firm. I've worked as a legal assistant, legal secretary, paralegal at various plaintiff and defense civil law firms since 1991. I've followed the case since Paradise Lost and independently researched it and formed my conclusion. And I also participated with a lot of other people in going to West Memphis PD and the courts in uh, Arkansas to obtain documents to be posted on the internet so that we would have that resource available to everyone researching the case. So that's basically my my background. <laughs> I'm also I'm a host of a podcast called Clear and Convincing. It's on uh, Blog Talk Radio, Talk Radio 49. We look at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, and my aim is to counter some of the media information, but also to try and explain why the courts ruled in the way that they did, even though the court of public opinion strongly disagrees with their ruling. Sure, and I've, I've listened to a couple of your episodes, and it's nice to have that perspective because 
it may surprise you, uh, maybe not, that even in this this case, in the West Memphis 3 case, that I've realized that it's very easy to put forth an agenda. Of course, I am a, you know, a media outlet as a podcast. Uh, but for example, Paradise Lost in the West of Memphis and any other, you know, Making a Murderer is a great example of, you know, it's, it's, it is easy to sway public opinion if you're selective about what you're putting out, especially in a case that, you know, was unknown back then when it started. So, you know, it's nice to have somebody breaking those things down because I'm sure that, you know, we probably disagree on several cases, but you, you might be surprised we agree on a lot also. I have to, I get cases submitted to us constantly and I'm always screening them and you might be surprised how many of them that I reject because as much as they're claiming they're innocent, I believe that they're guilty. Right. So with, with all that being said, Lisa, let's go ahead and get started. And as we discussed before we started recording, I think we'll start things off by both kind of opening up with a very short summary of why our positions are where they're at. And so I'll go first as far as why I've come to the conclusion that I believe the West Memphis Three uh, Jason Baldwin, Damian Eccles, and Jesse Miss Kelly are innocent. And for me, it, a lot of it has to do with my approach when I'm investigating any of these cases through the screening process and the investigation. I look at the, the, the case all the way back from ground zero, and you know we, we go through the same process in every case. So we, we analyze the crime scene, we study victimology, we profile the crime scene, and kind of determine what direction we would go with an investigation. And then if the police went a different direction, then you know we investigate their investigation. But for me, and understandably that this is not you know a legal position, but for me to do my work, I bring everyone back to a point of a presumption of innocence, and then I work forward from the case from there. And for me, after you know analyzing everything from uh, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, I've worked quite a bit on the Jason, excuse me, Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly, and I've, I've worked a little bit on the Jason Baldwin stuff yet, but we haven't covered it on the podcast. But as you know, there's not a lot to cover there. You know, he never did a recorded interview. He didn't testify at trial. To me, there's just not, there's not a case there. Everything, and, and this case for me has all the markers of just about every single other wrongful conviction I found. I, I seem to always find patterns that there's, there's going to be a jailhouse snitch. There's shaky witnesses that later recant. A lot of circumstantial stuff where, you know, someone overheard or overheard this. No direct evidence in the case. And oftentimes we find that there's a, a false confession within a, a wrongful conviction. So I see those markers, but when I look at the actual evidence, certainly there can be an argument, and I suspect that as we go through your points, that we will maybe disagree on the conclusions, but I don't think there's much of a disagreement on the actual facts as to what happened. I think, I think the disagreements between the so-called nons and so-called supporters are, are more the interpretation of the facts or, or what gets weight and what doesn't. But for me, as I, as I, as I look through the case, I see, you know, a lot of circumstantial stuff, a lot of it's credible, some of it's not credible, but at the end of the day, I don't see any clear and convincing evidence that the three are guilty, and especially as we just finished up the Jesse Miss Kelly confessions, which is the strongest evidence, I don't see any evidence that he actually has intimate actual knowledge of the crime scene, and as we just mentioned in this past week, the fact that in his Bible confession, when he's, when he's getting all this off of his chest, he also includes, not as an alibi, but just as a recounting of his day, his interaction with the police at Highland Trailer Park, which we know occurred between 6.31 and 6.59 p.m. on the night of the murders. So that's a quick summary of where I'm at. If you want to go ahead and give me a quick summary of the basic reasons why you think they're they're guilty, and then we'll let you go through those point by point. Well, I, I mean, one of the, the biggest things is none of them can present 
or has presented a, a solid alibi. Witnesses put them in different places at different times. What they told police, for example, Eccles, when he was initially questioned on May 10th, said, we went to the Sanders from 3 to 5. Well, then when the Sanders are interviewed, it was 7 to 7.30, 7.45. So the, not only did the time of arrival and departure change drastically, but the length of time that they were supposedly there changed from two hours to 30, 45 minutes. Uh, Ms. Kelly had way too many witnesses, and it's not impossible for him to have left the quarantine and gone wrestling that night. So the wrestling isn't really an alibi in that the time that it started is after the murders were committed. The officers who responded to the trailer park testified at Ms. Kelly's trial. They knew Ms. Kelly. None of them saw him. None of them talked to him. So the witnesses saying that he talked to Dollahite, they just could not have been right because Dollahite knew him and would have remembered talking to him. So um, that's one of the main reasons. Ms. Kelly did describe the injury, the cutting face of the face and the uh, removing of Chris Byers' genitals during the June 3rd statement and in subsequent statements. Uh, his subsequent statements were also consistent in who attacked whom and who was involved in the murders. And that includes the August 19, 1993 statement he gave to Dan Stidham, in which he was still saying he was guilty. And I don't think anybody can point to a single false confession case in which the person gave multiple false confessions over a year's time. and even false confessions to their own attorney. And that's what what trips me up on the whole false confession idea uh, is that he's confessed to Dan Stidham twice without police present. Why would he do that? Also, the idea that the confession should have been a narrative is not an accurate one. Confessions are in whatever format the individual is comfortable in delivering them. And if you're going to say Ms. Kelly is the intellect of a six-year-old, you can't expect him to then turn around and give a detailed narrative confession when that's not how a six-year-old admits to doing wrong. The six-year-old, you got to pull it out of them. So that's another thing. Um, there's no single format. There's also the fact that when a person is a suspect in a crime, and they're brought in by police, they do not immediately say, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's often a situation of going in, denying involvement, giving an alibi, maybe giving information that, uh, or getting information from the police that lets them know they know you're not telling the truth, and then it evolves. And that's what we see with Ms. Kelly. It evolves. And they knew he wasn't telling the truth, and they knew he knew more than he was saying. There's also the sightings of Eccles near the crime scene by the Hollingsworth. People can second-guess their credibility, but they testified, Tabitha testified at Ms. Kelly's trial, Narlene and Anthony testified at Eccles' trial, 
the juries found them to be credible. They reported this right after the murders. They didn't wait for uh, rewards to be offered. They didn't wait for the arrest to be made and suddenly come out of the woodwork. They reported this, I think, on May 9th, and they were consistent. And Ricky Hollingsworth, Marlene's husband, he corroborated that she said she saw them on the night of May 5th. He said he couldn't identify the people, but he corroborated that she said it was Eccles and Domini, and she wanted to stop and give him a ride home. And then there's the fiber evidence. There were green and green cotton and polyester fibers on Michael's clothing. There was a red rayon fiber on Chris's clothing that was found to be similar to a garment from Eccles' trailer and a garment from Baldwin's trailer. It wasn't found to also be similar to anything from Kelly's trailer, from Pierce's trailer. And there was uh, a suspect who provided green and red clothing for comparison, and it wasn't found to be similar to any of that. Um, then there's a late knife found behind Baldwin's trailer, and Deanna Holcomb testified that it looked like one that Eccles carried. And then we've got the admissions, which are direct evidence, because they are what the witnesses heard themselves. And that is Eccles' admission at the softball field and Baldwin's admission to Michael Carson. And again, the way the way that came about, Baldwin made the admission. Michael Carson didn't say anything. He was released, he told his father, and it was his father that got him to come forward. It wasn't like he went to he got he talked to Baldwin and then he went to the people in jail and said, I gotta talk to the prosecutor. I've got you know, I've got a, a confession. So again, how it came about isn't the way most jailhouse confessions come about. Um, this is like any murder. There's not a lot of direct evidence. There's not going to be a lot of direct evidence. The majority of murder cases are tried on circumstantial evidence, especially in the absence of the confession, as we have with Beckles and Baldwin. And this evidence, that is sufficient evidence, that in and of itself is sufficient evidence. People don't agree with it, but it is sufficient evidence. The Hollingsworth sighting gives them opportunity. I also, I believe that it was Baldwin, not Domini, uh, with Eccles up on the service road. The fiber evidence is circumstantial, but it wasn't similar to anything else examined by the crime lab over the course of the investigation. And then Eccles' testimony, that was, you know, a disaster. He never should have gotten on the stand. I definitely agree with that. And I think, too, that the people who advocate for the innocent, they overstate what the purpose of the occult evidence was. It wasn't that there was an organized satanic cult sacrificing, going around the country sacrificing people. This was Eccles' beliefs, which were not—he did not follow one specific theology, for lack of a better word. He took things that appealed to him from different sources, and he kind of created his own belief system. And when you couple that with with his mental problems, and again, the big controversy is Exhibit 500, and— 
there are a lot of statements in, in Exhibit 500 that are directly from Eckert. And to discount them is short-sighted because it shows that he could have done this. And motive is something that doesn't have to be proven, but it's a good thing to know, and it's something a lot of juries will wonder about. So that was the purpose of that evidence. And, I mean, I don't know who can deny that the way that the boys were tied can be interpreted as ritualistic. While there may be other theories that can be interpreted as ritualistic, and the fact that they were naked, that could be ritualistic. The general mutilation, that could be interpreted as ritualistic. And really, there's nothing at the crime scene that would have directed the investigation in any direction, because there was so little found at the crime scene. Right. So we've got a pretty long list there. And so I'd like to kind of go through, unless you have something else you want to add to that list, but we've got quite a bit to to try to well, go through I, and unpack. I, another, one other thing I want to add is the West Memphis Police Department is criticized for not looking more closely at all of the parents. And while I would have liked to have seen recorded interviews with each and every one of the parents, I can understand why they would not look at the parents because the boys weren't related. And the theory that a parent would kill their child and two unrelated children, even to eliminate witnesses, is just kind of far-fetched to me. Because it's statistically, we've never seen it before. We've never seen it since. You might have a case where a husband goes after the wife and kills the wife and the kids, but the wife was the target, not the kids. Sure. Okay. You know. Well, let, let's go ahead and back up to the beginning. I was trying to write stuff down as you were saying your points. And your first one was that none of the three had sufficient alibis. And and I don't I don't disagree with you there. I mean, the, it, the difference is, I think, in our in our viewpoint on that is that in all the, the criminal cases that I've looked into, both with guilty people and innocent, I, I rarely ever see anyone that actually has a solid alibi. Typically, from from my perspective, in cases I've worked in, and, and of course, I don't know how if you've ever listened to any of our previous seasons where we've had uh, like Mike Ware, the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas, on, you know, and he's talked about in, in thirty plus years of practice, he's never seen an alibi work. Alibi is just there's nothing there. It, it, the juries don't care because typically it's going to be people that are close to you that give you them or that that provide them for you, and the juries tend not to believe that. Uh, but in my perspective, it's always if you didn't commit the crime, then typically it wasn't an important day to you and you weren't documenting your time. You're asked two or three or four days later. It's not uncommon for someone, from my perspective, to not know exactly where they were at. And then you start taking steps away for other witnesses. So I'm always looking at, as I've said on the show, are there, what are, what is everyone around them saying? Is there anybody that's, that's, that's putting them somewhere else? Because if the person does happen to be guilty, of course they're going to lie about where they were at. So what does everyone else say? And then how much are people willing to lie when they know this is involving the murder of three eight-year-old boys? Of course, they could always get it wrong. But I certainly agree that that Damien's alibi has its problems. You've heard my my take on it, that with that many people putting them at the Sanders house, you've got the the trip to the Splash Casino, you've got the, um, the Beverly Hills 90210. 
most of that rings true to me, but but I'm definitely willing to 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 concede that it's not a perfect alibi. It's not proof that he was there, but it's a good indication that he likely could have been there. I would be more concerned on my end if he went to police and said, oh, on May 5th, I was here, and then I was here, then I was here, and this is my alibi, and, and has a perfect alibi for the crimes. It seems It seems inconsistent to me for someone to go to the lengths they went to to try to conceal the crime scene and then be completely taken off guard when asked for an alibi and to give a bunch of a bunch of different versions of where they were at things that are inconsistent uh those two just I have a hard time reconciling those two together well i I think uh as far as the Sanders, one of the biggest problems for Eccles was that Jennifer Sanders remembered the visit because they went to her boyfriend's band concert the next night. That band concert was on May 17th. Right. Yeah. And there were other inconsistencies as well. You know, we had the... And, yeah. And Stacy remembered it because they were arrested a couple of days later. And that was, would have been June 1st. So um, that's a problem. That's the major problem with those two. There were other people, Ken Watkins, but he couldn't testify because... He also gave statements about an admission from Eccles. Uh, granted, Ron Lax was able to go around and get a lot of witnesses to recant uh, their negative statements, but if he got up on the stand and testified, that inconsistent statement would be waiting to impeach him on cross-examination. To me, I think that it's unfair to put any of these assumptions on there that in several people said, well, Ron Lax was able to convince them to change their stories. We don't know what those conversations were, and no one has come out and said uh, that that he actually there was on I believe William Winifred Jones there was testimony in a hearing at Miss Kelly's trial about what happened mm-hmm. and how it came about, and I've read it, and that is what led me to infer that Ron Lax was pressuring people. He was going to people and saying, "You're lying. We know you're lying," and you're going to get in trouble if you testify in court. But isn't that the same thing that the West Memphis police were doing for all the people that changed their stories? Who changed their stories with West Memphis PD for testify? Well, it's, I, I'm not talking about to testifying, just in general, what you just said. How many people are there that gave the West Memphis police their version of the story? They told them they were lying. They continue leaning on them and they changed their story. Like Buddy Lucas is a perfect example. Well, that's Buddy. That's actually the version of the story that Ron Lax got Buddy Lucas to tell. With the one he gave before um, West Memphis PD. Again, again, everybody, everybody who recanted, you've got Ron Lax in the mix, and they recanted after Ron Lax talked to him. Well, I'll, I'll concede that. But we, are you willing to and, concede that there was also many people that did not give us that, that gave one story and then didn't change well, it until the West Memphis. Again, well, hang on a second. We don't, hang on. We don't have anything, anything in the interviews with Buddy Lucas by West Memphis PD that demonstrates any of that. Well, we know that Buddy I Lucas. Mean, the transcripts in the interviews with Buddy Lucas seem to be, you know, fairly uh, benign. Well, the, my point is. The, and then it's, after Lisa, talking you, you, Lisa, we got we got to take turns here. We can't keep talking over each other. So my point, my point with with Buddy Lucas is the first time he interviewed with police, he tells them he doesn't know anything about it. 
Jesse gave him the issues in February, and then with the police interacting with him, and then in subsequent interviews, then he now there's a confession, and he gave him the shoes after the crime. And my only point is that's that's pretty consistent with you know what you're saying about Ron Lax that once he interviews and has a conversation with them, and and as you say, he puts pressure on them, they change their story. I would I would I would argue that that's that's how any investigators work. It's the exact same way the West Memphis PD work. There was a multitude of people that gave one story. The West Memphis PD still puts pressure on them, tells them they're lying, and then they change their story. It's the exact same thing, and from my perspective. Um, I don't know, because I think Buddy Lucas, because he was a minor, I think he was interviewed with his mother present. And as I recall, his mother actually is the one that uh, got him to, or family members got him to make the statement uh, implicating Michelle. Okay. Well, I mean, that could be the case uh, and, and we can move on for, I mean, I, I think that we, we, we both agree that we both disagree on, on, on that point, but you've, you've made your point as far as you think that the witnesses that recanted were based, were due to, if I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think this is what you're saying that the recanting witnesses were because of pressure from Ron Lax and that they weren't being honest when they recanted their, their statements. Correct. And then uh, you did make a point about wrestling, that with the wrestling timeline, Jesse could have committed the murders and still went to wrestling that night. I, don't, I, actually, I actually said that on the podcast. I don't disagree with that. I, I don't think that the wrestling really matters. There's questions there whether he went or not. I don't know whether he went or not. But I agree with you that that timeline, he could have committed the murders and then went to wrestling. For me, the more important part was the, the interactions with the police. And and you had said that I mean, your evidence that that didn't happen is the fact that the officers say they didn't see him. And, and so it, it comes down to who do you believe? You believe the officers. For me, you have my counter to that would be that you know, you've got multiple witnesses that say that they saw uh, there was um, Hogart and McNeese both said they, they saw Jesse talk to uh, Dollahite in $70 front yard. That's consistent with her story. Uh, and then, and then more importantly, when Jesse puts his hand on the Bible to confess, he doesn't use that as an alibi. When Stidham's asking him to recount his day, he gives much more vivid detail than he ever does about the crime, about how Connie had slapped Stephanie's Stephanie's daughter, and the police came, and I talked to the cop, and I told him where she was at, and then after she left, then then I went and I talked to Stephanie again, and then we went to Vicky's, and then we she went and got us booze, and then came back. And then he goes on to describe how he committed the murders. But I, I think that you'll agree with this if, and I know you're not going to concede that he is, but if Jesse was being honest there about his interaction with the police, that means he didn't even leave the Lakeshore trailer or the, the Highland trailer park until well after seven o'clock, didn't leave Lakeshore until after 730. And he couldn't have been in the woods. I When you go through all of his points, I don't think that could have happened before 830 at the very least before he could have gotten to the woods. And that's an issue for me. Uh, would you agree that if he's telling the truth about interacting with the police, that he couldn't have been at the crime scene when the boys entered the woods? Well, again, as as I recall the testimony from the trial, the police did not interact with him. That is the officer's testimony. Some of it comes down uh, to, and I think that it goes this way with juries, you have right. three officers that say, I never saw him. 
And then you have 12 people that say that Jesse was there, but because the officers are officers, they believe them and not the others. So for me, these are all, these are all a bunch of human beings and they're all giving a story and they're all talking about a triple homicide. I, I don't necessarily know if the officers are, are lying or I th- think that the two Marion officers both basically said they don't remember seeing him. Dalahite said for certain he never talked to him, didn't see him, but you've got all these other yeah. witnesses that say they, that he did. But I, I guess if you, if you believe the officers and he wasn't there and all the other witnesses are lying, th- that what do you make of, I'm curious what your, your opinion is. Why would Jesse give the vivid details of him interacting with the police at the trailer park that night, specifically when Connie slapped uh, Stephanie's son? Why would he include that in his confession? I, you know, you have to ask Jesse. I, how his mind works, I don't think. I think that would take five years of study. You know, I don't. I don't think that him giving that information in the Bible confession is really that exculpatory. Uh, People keep saying, well, the Bible confession, he sat through his whole trial. So maybe he's parroting that part of the defense in his statement to Stidham for reasons known only to him. Uh, And one of the things I want to say, I'm not, I don't criticize the witnesses for Eccles or Baldwin or Miss Kelly, I don't think they were doing anything nefarious. I think that they sincerely believe that they could not have done this, and so they want to help. And a lot of the, the all the stuff with the trailer park, the incident with Stephanie Dollar's son, that was, again, one of the problems. Uh, I think several witnesses said that Dollahite responded to Stephanie's house, and Miss Kelly said they're not there and told them where they were. Again, Dollahite said, "I never went to the house. I met him on the on the corner." Well, he does. He does say that he made a trip and left, and then went back and met them on the corner. Okay. So, um, but he doesn't say Miss Kelly told me they were on the corner. Right. He specifically says that he didn't ever see Jesse. Yeah. So. Again, I, like I said, I don't know why Miss Kelly would include that in the February 8th statement. In my research, he's not the sharpest crayon in the box, but he's not the little nub that everybody or that supporters make him out to be. He's got a little bit more street smarts than people give him credit for. And between his dad's experience and his own experiences with the juvenile system, he had a little bit more experience and knew how the game was played. So do you think that he was, that maybe that was intentional to try to give another confession that was impossible, like intentionally? Well, I think that with Miss Kelly, there's kind of a thin, thin, thin line between reality and fantasy to a degree. I agree with that 100%. For example, in the in the phone call with Greg Crow after the February 17th statement, he talks about Dan Stidham handcuffing him. Mm-hmm. And he's mad at Dan Stidham for handcuffing him. We know Dan Stidham didn't handcuff him. But in Jesse's mind, that's one of the things that happened that day. Right. And one of your points where I'll jump down to it because it's consistent with it goes in with what we're just talking about 
uh, with Stidham and Jesse's confessions. You also brought up the August 19th statement that Jesse gave to Stidham without police present. So I mean, and I've I've read, well, I've read them all, but I, I went back through uh, that one recently when I was going through all these these different uh, statements, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I read it, that one was my opinion of that interview was that at that point Dan Stidham believed Jesse was guilty and was trying to convince him to take a plea deal. Do you think? Do you feel like that's what was going on there? Um, that there were yeah there were plea talks going on between Stidham Crow and the. Um, prosecution right yeah. and, and in that discussion with jesse he's talking to him about pleas and i i think that my person is just my opinion but from reading that i personally believe and we'll hopefully find out soon dan stidham has agreed to do an interview uh i just don't know when we're hopefully we're going to get it done this week or next week but in, in my opinion it seemed like dan thought he was guilty because dan walks jesse right back through all of the stuff that he had said to the police in his previous statements and if you read that and you break it down the way that we have done the other ones, which is what does Jesse actually say? What information comes from him? And, and this is the part you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but that was worse than the police interview for me when I read it. I mean, Jesse gives nothing. It's all Dan saying. So then you went here. Yeah. And then there was this bank on the creek. Yeah. And then you then you were down at this part of the bank. Yeah. And Jesse's well, just answering everything that he's saying until. Dan talks to him about the plea deal and all that stuff. And he says, you're going to have to testify against. And there's one line in there where Jesse says, I don't know if I want to be lying to lawyers. And then they get right back into the plea discussion. But I don't think that Jesse gives, well, I know that he doesn't actually give any information in that. All he's doing is answering Stidham's questions. Yeah, but again, this is, I think that's a function of his intellectual shortcomings. The time that he left school, I mean, I I don't think he ever went to high school. I think he quit in, like, eighth grade. He quit in ninth grade, and I don't know if that means he quit before or after okay. or in the middle. I don't I don't know. So, and he had uh, one of the things, and I think we see it with Eccles as well, is that there wasn't a lot of follow-through or parental parental follow-through on recommendations. For, for Kelly, I mean, he had some anger issues and conduct issues, and special education and counseling were recommended when he was very young, and his parents just never followed through with that. Right. So, but no, I think the question and answer with Miss Kelly is because of his intellect and his ability to process information and his ability to convey information are not what it would be for you or for me. I mean, if I committed a crime, yeah, I could give a narrative confession, no problem. We'd be in there for hours. But with Jesse, you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to ask him the questions and just get an affirmation or a denial. But there are instances in the confession where they gave him several choices, and he made the, you know, he made the choice. Not a lot, but there are a few. For example, whether they were in a car, who was driving, he said, no, we walked. Right. And then, again, he volunteered the information about Michael running away and him chasing him down and bringing him back. But is a, a lot of the, with that point, right? A lot of the criticism, a lot of the, I'm going to, I'm getting into that real quick. A lot of the criticisms is, People have not been to that area 
and did not see it as it existed on that date in 1993, even by the time I visited, it had changed. The ditch was, the banks were way too steep to try to go down into the ditch, and they had put a culvert over the ditch for people to pass through. And Jesse's not real descriptive, so he's not describing, and I don't think the officers are really describing enough or well enough to get a good picture of direction. So to say he ran south when he probably ran west if he was going toward the houses mm-hmm. and he was found to the north, uh, we don't know if Eccles and Baldwin, if that's where everything was going on, and then Eccles and Baldwin had to move Chris and Steve because the area where Michael was wasn't wide enough or deep enough to put Chris and Steve there. Or maybe they didn't want to put them all together. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. A lot of things we have to speculate about. Right. Yeah. And, and then that was that was kind of my point. Is Jesse does offer that information up, but there's no evidence to corroborate it. Even if you if you're saying it's a it's a it's a true telling that Michael ran away, he also says he brought him back to Damien and Jason. So him being separated doesn't really. It doesn't make any any difference based on that story. So it's and it, what it is also consistent with is Aaron Hutchison's version of one of the boys running away and being and being brought back, who Jesse spent the night before with. Well, yeah, but that that I don't think that Miss Kelly's confession came from Vicky Hutchison. No, okay. I mean, I'm I, 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 I know that's been one of the allegations, but I haven't really found anything. First of all, the allegation was that she got him to come forward and confess. Oh, I don't think that happened. No, I don't think. In my opinion, that's I, don't, I. I agree with you there. I don't think that happened. But Mike Allen just decided he was an associate of, of Eccles. And I, another thing I, I want to point out is that the West of the CD, as far as Aaron Gitchell, Mike Allen, and Brian Ridge, who were the primary investigators, they did not really seriously, seriously start considering Eccles until toward the end of May, maybe even the beginning of June, when none of the other leads that they were following or had followed had panned out. Mm-hmm. And um, again, a lot of the stuff about how they should have followed the evidence at the crime scene, well, what evidence is there at the crime scene? The bodies, the condition of the bodies. I agree with you that there's it's not likely that you're not going to you're not going to identify a person until you find a person to check against. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was you know back to a point that you had made earlier, you know, as far as, you know, you haven't seen a, a child being murdered and other kids being murdered as witnesses. I, I don't know. I'll have to take your word for it that has never happened before. I've never researched it. But, but from my my perspective, anytime you have a homicide, especially especially with children like that. It makes sense that you and you don't have any specifically that you don't have any leads. That my only complaint with the officers is what you should do is always start with the people closest to them and work your way out. And I think that just about any investigator out there would agree that that's that's a good place to start when you don't know where to start and start ruling people out and working out in concentric circles because the the crime right. scene does indicate, in my opinion, that this is someone that had a known personal relationship to the boys, um, given the amount of effort that went into concealing them. So. 
you, and that's what they never did. They instead instead of doing that, they and, and and I don't disagree with you that the main investigators were were looking elsewhere. Uh, it was it was uh, Sudbury and Jones that that pegged Damien right away, and they 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 interviewed him and did the polygraphs and all that, and then they moved away from him, and they didn't come back to him until a couple of weeks later. And, you know, actually also on Sud, on Jones and Driver, one of the things I listened to your interview was Eccles. And, you know, he makes it sound like they were just pulling things out of their butts as far as the cult stuff and they were obsessed with it. But what he doesn't say is that he was the one contacting Driver and telling him, I'm in a cult. The cult members are coming back from California, and we're about to graduate to human sacrifice. Now, he has said, oh, I just told them things like that to mess with their minds. But, unfortunately, they took him seriously. And that was why they were looking at the cult cult signs going around. And, you know, this is something teenagers do. It's not—but it can lead to more serious criminal conduct if you don't get a handle on it. And I also, the state, in Dale Griffith's testimony, basically he describes Eccles as a dabbler, as an individual who doesn't follow a set practice, who makes it up as he goes along, adopts what appeals to him, and then leads other people in the little group. And that was what it was all along. And that is what I think. I don't think Wicca is bad. I don't think people who call themselves Satanists are bad. If they're following the established tenets that say do no harm. Make yourself happy, but don't hurt anybody else. But that's not what Eccles was doing. And again, when you couple it with what's going on in his mind, you've got a recipe for very bad things potentially happening. And this is what I think happened here. So the stuff you're talking about here, as I guess, could lead into the Exhibit 500, uh, Damien's psych record, uh, and, and you've yeah. covered quite a bit already there. And and you'll get no disagreement from me that number one, Damien didn't do himself any favors, you know, guilty or innocent. I'll, I'll say this, it doesn't matter. He caused a lot of problems for himself by some of the things that he did and a lot of the stuff that he said. And I don't deny that that he was a troubled guy, and I, th- I think he even in, in Exhibit 500 described himself as being, I think he said uh, sociopathic or homicidal or both. Uh, that he said that you know to a doctor somewhere within within Exhibit 500. I don't I don't deny any of that. I don't deny a Damien anything you just said. I don't think that any of that is. I, I don't disagree with any of it. Okay, that's good. Yes, <laughs> we agree on something. And and that being said. For me, you know, that's that's all stuff I take into effect. Anybody that you look into any crime as a suspect, you look into their background, their potential uh, to be able to commit the crime. And certainly there are, I don't know if you would agree with this, but probably lots of other people that also had issues, violent pasts, issues with kids, uh, even other people claiming to be Satanist or psychopathic, sociopathic, that there was a number of people within West Memphis that probably fit some of those same categories. Well, yeah, there may have been, although I I think if that had been the case, we would have a little bit more documentation. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the problems I've always had is when they were 
when they were accusing Mark Byers and when they're accusing Terry Hobbs, they always point to the violent history, which is no different or actually not as bad as Eccles. I mean, some of the things he says, you, you have to wonder, well, that you, you don't have to wonder. You can see that this is somebody who could do something like this. Well, and they, and I, I want to move off from other suspects. Uh, I don't want to get into that, too, but but just just as a, a point to what you just said, you know, I, I think you just said it perfectly that you know, in, in your opinion, what these two people or any other suspects have done is not as bad as what Damien has said. Uh, and, and so there's you've got you've got a history of things he said and what what you think could happen violently, and then you've got other suspects, not just those two, but other people too that that have committed violent acts and I, I guess it's you know you, you weigh the scales and which you feel is worse or better in my opinion it's just all stuff that needs to be considered when you look at a suspect you know what is their their history and that's you know and i and we're going to get into it when we get into the new investigation and i've I've kind of left this out there but that was you know one and, and this is not the only thing but one little thing with with like david jacoby People that that have accused him or, or lumped him into it i think we both agree that he has nothing to do with this at least on that Oh, no. I mean, no. Stuart and Guy are two rapists who were incarcerated with Miss Kelly and Baldwin, who probably wanted a trip to Crittenden County. And so they got together and they came up with this story about Buddy, L.G. Hollingsworth, uh, Terry, and David Jacoby. Right, and I don't want. And, I, I don't want to. I don't want to even dig. I, I, to be honest, right now, I don't even want to give that theory any the credit. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. But the point being what we were talking about looking into, you know, when you look at the, the history of people that could be a potential suspect, you know, Jacoby is a perfect, when you look at him, the man's never had, I, I don't know, I, I haven't even found a speeding ticket in his record. He's got seven children, tons of grandchildren. Every single person you talk to around him is just the kindest, sweetest. the biggest complaint I got about him was that he wouldn't spank his kids. <laughs> so, you know, that, he, that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't enough of a disciplinarian. You know, so that, of course, matters, but it also matters when people like Damien has this uh, psychological history uh, and things that he's done and things that he said. And then any other suspects that might have a those are all things we kind of you just you I, I don't think it's one's worse than the other. And I don't think it's fair to, to judge them that way about what he said or he did or he did. And not saying this is any of these people, but say, you know, one guy beat his wife, the other one beat his kids. Well, that's worse than that one. They both they both are indicators that. This person may have this this inside him a violent tendency inside of him. As far that's just my only counter to that. Other than getting back to what you said about of Damien, certainly I agree that these are all you know. Exhibit five hundred is full of concerns for someone that has a potential to do some harm to people. Right. You know. I mean, Eccles has said that it was put together by Baldwin's attorney to make him look guilty. Oh, I'm I'm I don't doubt that at all. I mean, there. You look look through the throughout the trial how hard Baldwin's attorney was trying to get the judge to separate the trials. Well, no, but Bob, that's not how Exhibit 500 came about at all. Exhibit 500 was put together for the case in mitigation for Eccles in the penalty phase. Right by his attorneys. By his attorney, by well, by Ron Lax's uh, social worker employee, Glory Shettles. Mm-hmm. But again, in order to discount it, Eccles tells people Baldwin's attorneys put it together and make him look guilty. And that's another big difference between you and me. I don't 
generally believe a lot of things said by individuals who've been convicted of crime. Well, I'll one-up you. Um, I don't typically believe anything said by anyone because I've been doing this for long enough. That's oh, why well, I, tr- I try to corroborate anything that's said. I get lied to daily. Your, your conversation with Eccles did not give that impression. <laughs> but I, you know, generally their self-serving statements are not are not something I even consider. And in my many years researching this case, I found so many things that are just flat out not true. And that's another thing that gets me is if you're innocent, why aren't you telling the truth? Why are you making these things up to make yourself look innocent? One thing that I try to do is, and I, I feel like we would, there would be a lot less hostility in a lot of places if, if everyone would do this is I try to consider everyone from both sides of the aisle. So consider something that Damien's saying or Jason's saying or Jesse or even John Mark Byers or Terry Hobbs or Jerry Driver, whoever. Look at it like, what if if this person was guilty? Then what does it mean when he says this? But what if they're innocent? And so I, I look at, you know, we, we, can, we can look at all of the West Memphis Three's behavior and, and things they've said from the perspective of they're guilty and they're lying about all this stuff. But then... For me, I'll also look at it like, well, but what if what if they were wrong? What if they are innocent? What if these guys literally did nothing wrong and then got locked up for 18 years, put on death row, and they and they hadn't? What if, if for example, I'll, I'll point to you just as an example. What if you, Lisa O'Brien, are wrong and they really didn't do anything wrong and they've, they've had all this stuff said about them and drug through the mud, even the Exhibit 500 coming out? To me, then all of a sudden, it maybe it makes a little more sense as to why someone w- may may lie and say, no, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, because they don't want people thinking that way about them. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe they're just liars. You know, maybe, maybe I, I don't know this, and I'm not even saying this, but maybe Damien Eccles is just in general a liar. But what if he's innocent of these murders and he's a liar? You know what I mean? They're, they're, these, are all, these are all potentials out there. I mean, and maybe I'm wrong, and I won't put words in your mouth, but I think that that most people that are really looking into this case have to have to at least consider the fact that we don't know 100% either way if they did it or didn't. I don't know 100% that they're innocent, and I don't feel like you, maybe you do, think you you know 100% that they're guilty. I mean, Scott Ellington's assistant when I was in his office told me this is, you know, what's crazy is that 25 years later, this is still an unsolved case, and that's coming out of Ellington's office. So I think there's there's a lot of doubt. To be continued next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, 
Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.